Welcome to the Unorthodoxy Podcast and to the first in a series that I'm going to be doing on the Enneagram. If you don't know what the Enneagram is, well then you've come to the right place. And if you're fairly familiar with the Enneagram, well then I'm hoping that there's something in this series for you too. I've wanted to look at the Enneagram here for a while and I'm hoping that this will be really illuminating and inspiring for anyone who listens in. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you will know that my focus here tends to be on the on the theological critique of ideology, and I hope that doesn't scare you if you've just joined me. When I refer to the theological critique of ideology, I'm probably just offering a complicated way of saying that I like to look for ways to think differently through various existential, philosophical, and ideological problems. But even with the brand of theoretical promiscuity that I promote, my main lens is what used to be known as the queen of the sciences, which happens to be theology. Against all the caricatures, and there are many, theology is actually really useful because it allows for the interplay of many perspectives and theories, which is why I can jump from talking about language to hermeneutics to metaphysics to philosophy to creativity studies or neuroscience or spirituality or any other field that I happen to be interested in at the time without ever really losing touch with the theological ground that I'm working from. I know, of course, that theology can be taken as a very rigid framework, as in frameworks like Calvinism or Arminianism or any other ism, but my main aim is always to try and transcend the rigidity of those sorts of frameworks, because I think that they can be a little bit stifling, both for the mind and the soul. When I talk about the critique of ideology, it may help to bear in mind that I see critique as different from criticism, because critique includes a creative component that aims to make things better, rather than simply having a destructive impulse to simply tear everything apart, without necessarily offering any kind of alternative. Criticism likes to deconstruct and destruct, which I think is great, very necessary and helpful in many ways, but but stopping at deconstruction is potentially paralyzing. And so this is where critique comes in. Critique tries to find reconstruction after deconstruction. Critique is not just about finding ways of thinking, but about finding ways of living. It's about living in the midst of severe complexity and moving beyond that complexity into healthy ways of being. I think that the Enneagram focuses on personal ideologies, and in doing that, it involves both deconstruction and reconstruction. It's this amazing tool. It's a tool that can help us to discern what matters to us, why it matters to us, what we desire, how that desire is mediated, and a number of other things. Which is really to say that the Enneagram is really about finding your truest self. This is a really important thing to stress because a lot of people out there tend to use the Enneagram a little like any other personality typing system. They'll find out what their number is because the Enneagram works with nine types, each of which is named by a number. And then they'll just move on quickly without necessarily trying to identify the dynamics that make that number what it is. In a way, many people read the map without necessarily knowing what the map is about or what it is for. There is a tendency for people to get stuck at what the map is saying about where they are without necessarily understanding 
where they should be going. Some approaches to the Enneagram get stuck into very detailed descriptions of the nine types and then the various levels of maturity that are possible within the nine types. And this is all very well, and it can be very useful to the extent that it helps people to overcome the natural delusions that are coupled with any personality type. The trouble is that personality is often the very thing that keeps reality at bay. And this may sound a bit odd to you, but as I move through the grammar of the Enneagram, which I like to call Enneagramma, because neologisms are cool, you will get a better sense, I hope, of what I mean. Healthier personality types may just be delusions in a more acceptable form. So as I see it, the nine types represent nine hermeneutical directions or trajectories or or tonalities. They show us grooves according to which each type interprets the world and patterns according to which each type operates. But the map also shows us how each of us can transcend our own hermeneutical framework. The aim is not just to polish the lens, as it were, but to really get rid of it completely. And you may think that that sounds like nonsense, and maybe to a certain extent it is. But as I see it, it's nonsense that makes better sense than most sense. So my approach in this and in future podcasts on the Enneagram is to delve into the dynamics of the Enneagram system. One of the reasons I think it's such a brilliant system is that it is dynamic. This means that even when I get to the nine specific so-called Enneatypes or Enneagrammatic types, my aim is not just to talk about what the individual numbers symbolize, but how those numbers function within the dynamics of the Enneagram itself. I think that the Enneagram is pretty much pointless without having a sense of the depths of being that it's trying to get us into touch with. I also think the Enneagram is brilliant because it is ultimately concerned with the life of the soul, which no amount of secularist philosophizing has managed to convince me doesn't exist, because all of that secularist philosophizing is just way too soulful to to arrive at a satisfactory framework for soullessness. Bearing this in mind, this sole focus of the Enneagram, let's look at what I'm calling the Enneagramma, which is, as you guessed, the grammar of the Enneagram, how it works and how it directs our attention. Let's start with a basic description of what the Enneagram is, although I suspect more than a few of you will already have some sense of this. Maybe this will be a good recap for those familiar with the system and I'm hoping that my approach will at least be slightly left field of what you normally hear. The Enneagram is a nine-pointed figure contained within a circle. Each point that connects with the circle gets a number, and the numbers of the points are connected by a few very well strategically placed lines, which at first may seem arbitrary, but in fact are the life of the Enneagram. So that's the general idea. You can actually draw it yourself or maybe just imagine it in your mind to make it more concrete for yourself. To break it down, let's start with the circle, which outlines the whole Enneagram. It's a perfect circle. Of course, the circle is is a shape that comes preloaded with abundant meaning. It symbolizes all kinds of things, the masculine and feminine principles, totality, wholeness, original perfection, the self, the infinite, eternity, continuity, timelessness, all cyclic movement, and even God. In a wedding band, it symbolizes unconditional love, among other things. 
The circle also suggests flashbacks to the Lion King, the circle of life. Birth, life, death, rebirth. Birth, life, death, rebirth. So right from the outset, we know that the Enneagram is going to have a lot to do with the pursuit of wholeness and the way that different people might get that right or wrong as they go through this circle of life. In fact, there's a kind of paradox in the way that the Enneagram works out. Even though the circle is predominantly a positive symbol and so it points to all sorts of good things, it also symbolizes the struggle that we have to really reach a state of wholeness or to connect with reality. Each of the nine points on the circle is only touching one tiny piece of the circle. So the circle is in a way symbolic of both the loss of contact with reality and the potential to come back into contact with reality. So that's the circle. Then let's look at the next level, which is an equilateral triangle within the circle with its points touching the sides of the circle. The apex or top point gets labeled with the number 9. The left point gets the label 6 and the right point gets the label 3. So here we have three numbers connected, 9, 6 and 3. Then between the 9 and the 3 are the numbers 1 and 2. Between 3 and 6 are the numbers 4 and 5. And between 6 and 9 are the numbers 7 and 8. These numbers then are connected by lines in the following way. This is a bit of a mouthful, so this is probably why a drawing is much easier to follow. 1 connects to 4, 4 connects to 2, 2 connects to 8, 8 connects to 5, 5 connects to 7, and then 7 connects back to 1. If we want to understand the Enneagram for the dynamic model that it is, the connections between the numbers are really important. But please don't panic if you haven't got, gotten the gist of this just yet. I'm going to obviously explain more as we go along and it'll make more sense as we go along. So, as I've said, each number represents a particular personality type. And with this in mind, it'll help to keep in mind a few things. The first is that people really don't change their enneotype. If you are born a three, for instance, the good or bad news, or probably good and bad news, is that you will always be a three. Both the dreamy and nightmarish qualities of being a three will always follow you. And this is true of all the types. We bring both the best and the worst along with ourselves. And wherever we go, well, there we are. So we're stuck with our Enneotype. But the whole point of the Enneagram is that we can do the work. Enneagrammatologists, that's another of my neologisms, call it the work and that's the thing that we do in the process of growing. Also keep in mind that the Enneotypes are not gendered or race or class dependent. In, in reality, it turns out there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is also a necessary flexibility in the descriptions. That means that you may or may not relate to everything in any particular Enneotype description. In fact, you may, I warn you, hope that everything is not true of you. We are all at different levels of growth and unlearning and relearning. So don't think of what I say about the Enneotypes as absolutely set in stone. 
I will talk more about that in the next episode. And a massive part of the Enneagram is learning how to transcend personality. Although, of course, the basic ego structure of our type will always remain there. As, as you will see as we move along, especially in the next episode, this ego structure is the residue of a fall from a particular sensitivity to reality that is in each of us. We're all sensitive to reality in a particular way. You should also know that the numbers that are used as descriptors of each enneotype are absolutely value neutral. If, if you are, for instance, a seven, you are no better than a six, despite what you may think. And if you are a number one, that really doesn't mean that you're number one. No single type is better than any other as far as the Enneagram system goes. This doesn't mean, however, that that societies will necessarily value all types equally. Different societies render different personality types more necessary or vital than others. But the Enneagram itself tries to get behind this ideological straitjacketing to a deeper truth, which is that we all have a place within the scheme of things. We also all have positive and negative traits, and those traits will help us to better understand how we need to evolve. You are just as bad and just as good as anyone. And that's, I think, good theological sense too. By the way, it may help you to know that when we go through the different types later on, you may suddenly feel a little disturbed or maybe even offended. That's kind of part of the deal with the Enneagram, I'm afraid. There'll be moments when you'll say, wow, my Enneotype is the awesomest type of all. Nobody is as cool as I am. And other moments, you'll be just totally horrified at just exactly how your flaws manifest themselves. But please understand, and I'll probably say say this again later, pain is part of growing, as are the different degrees of elation. The trouble with both delight and despair at the qualities of our individual enneotype is that both of these indicate an over-identification with our personality. In other words, both delight and despair are signals of a kind of clinging to our egos that is fairly commonplace, but which can distract us from the reality that we're supposed to be coming into contact with. It may help you as you listen to have a rough idea of where you fit into the Enneagram model, but since I'm planning to cover things in quite a bit of detail, you can just keep on listening in and find out as you go along. There is an argument to be made that not knowing your Enneotype might make this journey a little more interesting, since again my aim is to tackle the Enneagram at the level of its dynamism. But for more on that, you're going to have to tune in to the next episode. Thank you again for joining me. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and this is the Unorthodoxy Podcast. You can support the Unorthodoxy Podcast on Patreon, and you can get into touch with me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com.